But taken as a whole, the introduction of these labor-friendly bills sends a clear signal from congressional progressives to workers and to organizers on the ground that their elected officials support their efforts and stand with them in their struggle for better labor practices and workspaces. Um, so yeah, it, you know, who knows? Who knows what happens mm-hmm. from this? Hopefully the right to work starts to cascade as well, but uh, we will have to leave it there. We will keep you abreast of this for next month if there are developments. Thank you so much for tuning into Labor Radio. I'm Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gilland. Have a great night. This is Judy Berry from Earth First, and when I'm in Portland, I listen to non-commercial community radio, KBOO Portland, no compromise in defense of the truth. These are the final days of KBOO's Volume 2 All Thrills, No Frills special programming campaign, wrapping up with a full day of live music. Saturday, March 25th, KBOO's annual Bluegrass Marathon will be held at the historic Multnomah Grange 71 in Gresham. Go to kboo.fm slash bluegrass23 for ticket info. Tune in or join us in person for the 2023 Bluegrass Marathon on March 25th and get your exclusive limited edition 2023 Bluegrass Marathon t-shirt at kboo.fm slash bgshirt. Tune in to KBOO on Saturday, March 25th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. for our 2023 Bluegrass Marathon, live at Multnomah Green 71. Uncle Chippy and Josh will kick off the marathon at 9 with a journey back to 1971, along with live recordings from local and regional acts. At noon, we'll head down to the Grange for live performances from several of Portland's finest bluegrass bands. Performers include Josh Colband, Sawtooth, Sunny South, and more. The event is also open to the public, so bluegrass fans are invited to join us down at the Grange. More information can be found at kboo.fm bluegrass23. This is KBOO, Portland. Baby, you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong, you see some bad Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon This is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh before we get started, a quick reminder, it's the last week of All Thrills, No Frills, KBOO's Winter Drive. Check out all the great programming we've done at kboo.fm slash thrills. We only have a few days left to reach our $17,000 goal. Please help us get there. Donate today at kboo.fm slash give. Or if you're using the KBOO mobile app, just click on that donate button. Support community-powered radio. Make your donation today. Thanks. There's a new report out from the Prison Policy Initiative on the State of Incarceration in the United States entitled Mass Incarceration, The Whole Pie. On Zoom with me now to discuss it is, and other stuff is Wanda Bertram, Communication Strategist for the Prison Policy Initiative. Wanda, thank you Hi. for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. 
So your new report, Mass Incarceration, The Whole Pie. I've been looking it over. It's great stuff. There's so much vital information. Um, I'm a data nerd, so let's start with the numbers. We know that here in the U.S., we have a higher incarceration rate than any other nation on Earth. But, but what does that translate into? I mean, how many people are we actually talking about? Well, this year, I mean, and, and I, I should say this year, for this year's report, um, using the most recent data available, most of which was actually from December of 2021, um, we, we uh, put together an estimate that about 1.9 million people are locked up um, sitting behind bars on any given day in the U.S. Now, that's a smaller number um, than, you know, in previous years because the, the data that we're working with is still affected largely by COVID um, and the, the re- you know, reduction in incarceration that took place during the pandemic because of systemic slowdowns in the criminal legal system. Um, but it's still, uh, it's still a much higher number of people um, per capita than, than any other country in the world incarcerates. In fact, at the, at the point during the COVID-19 pandemic when, uh, prison and jail populations were at their lowest in this country, we were still locking up a greater number of people per capita in local jails alone, right? So basically pre-trial alone than the incarceration rates of any other um, developed country in the world. Just dig into those figures. What do you, in fact, you just mentioned this because a lot of people, some people probably have the impression that if someone's behind bars, it's because they've been convicted of some kind of a heinous crime. Yeah, but that's just not really true, is it? Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, there's there are you know there are plenty of people who are behind bars who have been convicted, um, but I think the you know whenever you look closer at anyone who is in prison, you get a deeper story, right? You get the circumstances that led to whatever crime it was that they committed, um, or maybe didn't commit, right? You see the circumstances around their conviction, um, and you know, and you also realize that there are over four hundred thousand people uh, on any given day sitting in local jails. Who have yet to be uh, to have to to you know take a plea deal or be tried, so they're not convicted, um, and and yeah, it's a huge population of people in this country. And since it's jails, that's a there's a turnover. So four hundred that that's a that's a snapshot. That's one day in the that's one day out of the year. Presumably, in another six months, there's another four hundred thousand or so people mm-hmm. sitting behind bars just because they couldn't make bail. It's ridiculous. That's right. That's right. Um, And and they're sitting behind bars because, you know, in many cases, they're not attractive clients for bail companies, right? Bail companies look at them and go, oh, you know, if you happen to not show up for your court date, you don't have the money to cover uh, the entire amount of your bail bond because bail companies don't actually cover, they don't actually pay up the bail bonds. If people don't show up for court, they, um, this is a little known fact that we've been um, exploring recently, but bail bonds, uh, in, in the event that somebody doesn't show up, they don't actually pay their bail. They, they just t- typically what they do is, you know, when they, when they bail somebody out of jail before trial, they will sign, they will get that person to, you know, basically sign over some of their assets that, you know, equal the full amount of the bail bond. So in the event that they don't show up, the bail company just, and the bail company has to pay the bond, which courts often don't make them do. Um, if they do have to do it, they'll just repo that person's house or that person's car, and then they'll pay the bail bond off that way. Um, but so what that means is that for the folks who are sitting locked up pre-trial, um, they're, you know, one of the reasons that they're locked up there is because bail companies uh, notice that they can't do that with them. They don't find them very attractive clients. Um, so that's just a, a tangent, um, but something worth mentioning. 
Oh, indeed. In fact, I and I I want to talk to you. A lot, I want to talk to you a lot more about bail and cash bail. I know that Oregon recently passed a a reform, but we still have some. We still have a variety of it, and ultimately, it does come down to if you've got money, then you get out, and if you don't have money, then you sit you sit in jail. And uh, but I want to keep going with this report because there's a lot of good stuff, and I've never heard of it. Yeah. Um, now, in addition to prison and jails, your report does talk about parole and probation. These are referred mm-hmm. to colloquially as community corrections. Correction. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's right. Now, how often are people on parole or probation? How often do they get incarcerated because of some minor technical violation? Is that a significant factor? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so it's a, it's a smallish number of people who are on probation and parole, percentage-wise, um, but the, the absolute numbers are pretty large. In 2021, about 150,000 people went from parole or probation to incarceration. And of those, the majority went in for what's called technical violations. Those are violations that are not crimes. Um, now, I, I think that this is important, even though it's, you know, this represents just about, I think, about 5% of people who are on probation and parole. Um, but that you have to understand, you know, this is largely because probation and parole uh, supervision systems don't have the capacity to, you know, a- actively supervise more people than that. Uh, and and so it's for the people that they are supervising actively um, that there, you know, there's this higher risk of going back uh, behind bars, even though you may not have actually committed a new crime. All that you might have done is failed to, you know, fail to make an appointment with your probation officer, maybe because you were in traffic, maybe because you had some childcare obligations, what have you. Perhaps you failed a urinalysis test. These are these are the kinds of violations for which about seventy thousand people a year are going back to jail. Which also feeds into one of the other, um, well, feeds into which also. There's a narrative because the percent of we talk about the drug war and the impact of the of drug sentencing in the federal system. Of course, it's a it's still a major, major part of the uh, the total federal population or people convicted of drug offenses in the state um, in the state prisons. It's a, a much lower percentage. Um, on the other hand, you've got these technical violations um, with people being um, taken back to uh, taken back to prison because they tested positive for pot, or they tested, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe they're maybe we're just expecting that, you know, even though we know that recovery is a process, and we know if you have ever looked at AA, you know that people slip. We know that, um, you know it takes time and people don't always get it right the first time if you're uh, if it's drugs then we expect you to we expect a miracle of your completely abstinent as soon as mm-hmm. you're released anyway could you um and drugs are my things could you talk for a moment about the impact of some of the a little more about the impact of some of these especially um when it comes to uh, when it comes to drugs Absolutely. Yeah, the, the, you know, the drug war in the US is alive and well, and it's responsible for only a small, uh, you know, slice of the whole pie. And actually, I should zoom out and say here, our report, Mass Incarceration, the Whole Pie, is called this because it's not about pizza. There's a big pie chart at the top that shows every, you know, basically every correctional population in this country, where people in the US are locked up, um, uh, in what types of facilities, uh, why they're there offense-wise. Um, so how many people are in local jails, how many people are in state prisons, and uh, how many people are in other you know, different types of facilities. So we stitch this data together um, from different sources in order to come up with a picture of you know, the total you know, just the the total picture of incarceration, because um, oftentimes it's hard for people to see 
the forest for all the trees of different systems that there are, uh, you know, that can find people in the U.S. And so, uh, you know, talking about the war on drugs, the war on drugs represents um, really only a small slice of this whole pie. Um, so the, the the number of people who were behind bars on any given day, primarily for a drug offense, is like I'd say about twenty percent. That's you know significant, but it's not the majority. Um, but the war on drugs still has a massive impact. Uh, police are still making over a million drug possession arrests every single year, right? Um, they make a much smaller percentage of you know uh, drug selling arrests, uh, which are also quite harmful. You know these arrests lead to uh, disproportionately the incarceration of women um, who have you know whose incarceration rates have been uh, rising compared to men's for the last 10, 20 years. If you ever hear about the rising incarceration rates of women, the drug war is a big part of why that is. They contribute to, you know, people being kicked off of public benefits. If you, you know, have, if you have a drug conviction in your past, uh, you know, you're, you are likely to be, um, uh, I should say, you are much less likely to be um, awarded affordable housing because the, uh, because HUD, um, Housing and Urban Development Department federally requires uh, that public housing authorities look at whether somebody is currently or recently using drugs. And if they are, um, that's an automatic denial, right? That's the war on drugs in action. Um, you know, it, it, it has huge impacts on, you know, people's health, people who are on probation and parole. This is part of an analysis that we're about to release next week. Um, people who are on probation and parole, um, uh, I, I think over half of them have substance use disorders, but only a third of those people say that they're receiving uh, treatment. Uh, and, and many of them say that, you know, if, even if they are receiving treatment, they're not receiving medication assisted treatment, which is the gold standard for an opioid disorder. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, that's important because as we were just talking about, probation and parole systems send a lot of people back to jail every single year because they committed technical violations. A technical violation can mean relapsing on, you know, in, into drug use and failing a, failing a drug test. Um, or it can make, you know, perhaps if you're, if you're employed and, you know, drug use becomes a problem with your employment or it becomes a problem with your housing, not being housed or not being employed, those can also trigger technical violations, right? You can go to prison for that too. Um, and so the, the deep irony is that, you know, there are people who are on these, you know, under probation and parole who have, substance use disorders who who want and need help and they're not getting it and and then they're being reincarcerated for you know the the crime that is relapse i'm so looking forward to this report on probation and parole it's obviously a a huge concern and well my home state is oregon as you as i as i think i've mentioned before and we passed a uh, rather groundbreaking measure a few years ago back in the 2020 general election called measure 110 the drug addiction treatment recovery act which Along with decriminalizing civil possession of some small amounts of some drugs, it also um, we also uh, are putting millions of dollars from the uh, from marijuana revenue into um, into programs for people with substance use issues and their families, things like housing and some and and peer support and mentoring and a lot of other stuff, not strictly speaking, the so-called treatment beds, um, you know, none of that, but uh, because those are medic, because that's going to be funded by Medicaid, but, um, but all the other support services and it's, um, yeah, the, uh, some of the support services in particular that, um, that I'm interested in finding out more about the parole and probation, how many, what generally kind of supports people on parole and probation are actually being provided. So you say it's, I mean, if you, I mean, how do you, 
you go out, you got nothing, you you end up with a violation because ultimately you're stuck living on the streets. You don't have a job, you can't get housing, and maybe because of all this and the depression, you end up using a drug. I mean, so many different possible ways uh, that the system can uh, that this messed you up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, really this is where we get into how prison and jail are, um, uh, and, and uh, I'd say like an alternative to healthcare, right? In this country, there are punitive, uh, there, you know, there, there are punitive systems that uh, oftentimes uh, people go into who were previously benefiting from Medicaid, right? Um, I think something like 35% of people in state prisons were on Medicaid before they were incarcerated. That's a much greater number than nationwide, right? Because these folks are poor and they have, you know, chronic health conditions. Uh, but the the function of the criminal justice system in many ways is to um, make it impossible for people to ever get those services again. Uh, when people are incarcerated, they, um, you know, frequently prisons and jails will call up um, the federal Medicaid office and they'll say, this person was just admitted to prison and jail. We're providing their health care now. You can take them off the Medicaid rolls. And because this is standard practice, uh, people who are uh, people who are locked up when they then get released, you know, weeks, months, or years later, they don't have insurance anymore, and uh, they have to go. I mean, they're, you're released from jail or prison. You've got nothing, right, except maybe a bus ticket to a homeless shelter, and all of a sudden you have to navigate the insurance process. Uh, and there's a very small number of states that actually do anything to help people get back on the insurance rolls after this. So, um, so you know, functionally, what these systems are doing is taking people off. Um, public welfare and uh, condemning them to lives, you know, revolving in and out of courts. This is my conversation with Wanda Bertram, communications strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. We'll have more in a moment. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Prison Pipeline here on listener-supported KBOO Community Radio. Before we get back to our interview with Prison Policy Initiative's Wanda Bertram, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who supported KBOO's Winter Drive, All Thrills, No Frills. If you've missed any of this drive specials, find them at kboo.fm slash thrills. While you're there, be sure to click on that donate button. This is the last week of our drive, so please give now. Thanks. Now let's get back to the show. Talk to me for a moment, if you could, about the impact of the criminal legal system on families. Uh, well, I mean, something that we that we know is that 58% of women in prison, and I think a comparable number of men in prison, are parents to minor children. Uh, when you incarcerate somebody, you are uh, oftentimes punishing the entire family, right? Kids that grow up without uh, this extra breadwinner, right? Or with one less breadwinner, I should say, um, that, you know, that do demonstrably worse in school because of, of a parent's incarceration, research has shown. Um, so the, you know, the impact is, is generational. We took a look at some survey data about state prisons last year, and what we found is that something like 33% of people who are in state prisons today uh, also had a parent incarcerated while they were growing up. Now that's not to say um, that people who have an incarcerated parent are predestined to go to prison themselves. It's not like that. but. Um, having a parent incarcerated is extremely traumatizing, right? It's considered an adverse childhood experience. And what's more, um, often going to prison can uh, can mean that your whole family ends up under greater surveillance, right? There's parole officers at some point coming in to check on everybody. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, because of that, you have kids and teenagers um, in these households ending up under the net of surveillance that was originally cast over their parents. 
I've had you on for a while, and uh, and if you have another couple of minutes, there's another report that you folks released earlier this month um, called Women's Mass Incarceration, the whole pie 2023. There's a couple of questions I had about that. Do you, do you have sure. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, now, well, let's, again, let's start with the numbers. How many women are held in prisons, jails, and other correctional facilities in the in the U.S.? Are there is a similar proportion to men, or is or is it different? No, there's always been way fewer women um, percentage wise incarcerated than there have been men. Um, there's about 130, excuse me, 173,000 women sitting behind bars in the U.S. on any given day. Um, that's I, that's just a fraction, right, of the total prison population, or excuse me, prison and jail and other confined populations, which comes to about 1.9 million. Um, so what is that? Less than 10%. Uh, nevertheless, uh, women's incarceration rates are much, much, much higher today than they have been at any point in in, in recent history. Um, they have been bouncing back up rapidly since the pandemic. And what's what's tragic, I think, is that um, we have we incarcerate more women in this country than any other country in the world, not just per capita, but in absolute numbers too. We incarcerate significantly more women than are incarcerated in absolute numbers in China. Right, China, which has a you know population billions of population, um, so this is the reason that we do this report um, just to break out what's happening to women is because you know this is they experience a very different criminal justice system than men do, and you know when we consider why women are going to prison, um, you know we also understand things about the war on drugs. Um, about broken windows policing uh, and and you know other kinds of of surveillance of families. If you go into that if you could. What are women being incarcerated for? Well, disproportionately, they're they're locked up for what are considered low level offenses, right? Drug offenses, public order offenses, um, burglary theft, um, you know, uh, pro- other property crimes, and because of that, actually, you see. Uh, that about half of incarcerated women are held in local jails as opposed to state prisons. Um, local jails, I mean, this is important, right? Because local jails are, um, they're, they're uh, yes, they are designed to hold people serving sentences for misdemeanors, but they're really built for stays of like two weeks. The vast majority of people in jail are there pre-trial, and that's what jails are designed to to cater to. So you have you have hundreds of thousands of women, or excuse me, I shouldn't say hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of women locked up in local jails, um, getting virtually nothing in the way of services, even though, and this is important, women who are incarcerated are even likelier than men to have mental illnesses, to have substance use problems, uh, to have disabilities, and other things that jails simply cannot care for. So we are really putting women uh, into very dangerous, even sometimes death traps, because of a, a minor offense. Uh, one of the one of the one of the methods that um, that we've used, California certainly, and others have used to reduce their prison populations, has been to use jails more aggressively and used to rule of thumb used to be of sentences for no more than a year. And Cali, they went up to two years. Um, in jails, have uh, that that was at least with men. Are, are women experiencing the same? Is that the same thing happening with women then? Well, I think you're talking about something slightly different, but but also important, right? Which is that um, in you know in the last couple decades, as states have reckoned with their massive prison populations and with you know the cost of building new prisons, which a lot of the time um, you know taxpayers do not want to be footing the bill for. Uh, they end up saying, okay, well, we're going to reduce our prison population. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to put people into 
local jails instead. California is a great example of this, actually under a consent decree with the Department of Justice um, under the Brown administration. Um, California reduced its, its prison population uh, significantly, but it did it by shifting a lot of people into the local jail systems. So that's why now, as you say, um, the, the median term being served in a California local jail is two years. That's really bad, right? Because, uh, you know, not... This is, I, I guess I would say this is in many ways, sure, it's a step forward in terms of, you know, not expanding the prison system. But these are these are folks that should not be incarcerated in the first place. If you can put somebody in a local jail, you know, what, what is, you know, what is what is the sacrifice that you are making for that in terms of that person's welfare? You're putting them in a facility that does not have uh, typically does not have, uh, you know, dedicated staff to provide mental health support. Um, it is, is, you know, is built, uh, to, uh, hold people without allowing them a lot of rec time, um, has very little in the way of communications amenities, right? Like pay phones, um, or, or video calling services, um, doesn't have much in the way of, you know, providing people with nutritious diets. So, uh, so the shift to incarcerating people in jails has been, um, yeah, I think has been very detrimental. Um, let's get back to this women to to the women's report. What are some of the experiences that that women go through that are different from men's? Well, uh, you know, women, I should say again, um, have seen rising incarceration rates largely because of the expansion of the war on drugs and broken windows policing. Um, broken windows, for those who don't know, is the theory that by targeting low-level crimes in high-crime neighborhoods um, and having zero-tolerance policy for certain you know, low-level nonviolent offenses, you can actually bring crime rates down overall. It's been around, uh, just a, just roundly has, it's, it has failed in terms of protecting public safety. Um, but what it has done is lead to a lot of people locked up for uh, these low-level offenses, and disproportionately, those people are women. Um, so, so you know, you, you, th- those are circumstances. You know, oftentimes, um, uh, you know, it, drugs will lead someone to um, behavior that can get them locked up uh, for low-level offenses. You also see a lot of women who are, uh, you know, trapped in relationships that lead them to criminal activity, right? Um, uh, women obviously have higher rates of poverty than men do. And the criminal justice system, you know, entraps people who, I mean, poverty is criminalized in this country. Uh, you know, you have higher rates. Uh, we also see higher rates of mental illness among incarcerated women. So no doubt mental health crises, uh, are leading to jail incarceration, um, for, for a lot of, uh, marginalized women in this country. Um, but the, you know, the big picture is that we have, we have so many women who are locked up today. And actually in, in jails, it's like 80% of women who are locked up are mothers. And so we're, we are, we, we need to find ways to, uh, stem this tide because otherwise, you know, families are going to continue to hurt. What have I not asked you about these reports yet that I should have? Oh my gosh. We've just talked about so many, so many things. Um, I, I would say that the, you know, the wide, the wide, uh, wider kind of world of people on probation and parole deserves one more look. Um, you know, there are, like I said, 1.9 million people who are locked up, uh, sitting behind bars uh, in this country on any given day, but there's over 3 million people, uh, in addition to that who are on probation and parole. And these folks are, you know, I think, I think have a harder time of it now. Than they have maybe at any given at any other point in recent years because there's this expansion that we've seen of ankle monitors, which uh, are are way more intrusive into people's lives than traditional in-person supervision. Um, 
private companies have, uh, you know, created this technology that allows supervision systems to to basically track someone's movement. And there's a lot of ways that they, um, you know, that they can uh, basically give a judge an impression that someone is violating the terms of their supervision way more than they actually are, right? You have a, you know, the GPS says that you can't wander outside a certain perimeter. You take one step outside that perimeter by accident because you're going to Starbucks to grab a coffee. And there there you go, you violated your supervision. Um, in, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you spend a day um, at work and the battery on your ankle monitor is low and your battery fails because you can't get away. That's a violation of your supervision because your ankle monitor's gone off and, you know, you're technically a fugitive. Um, so I think that the, you know, the fact that this is happening to 3 million people on any given day, um, not necessarily ankle monitors. I don't, I actually don't know the number of people on ankle monitors right now. Um, but the fact that th- these kinds of systems are burdening people on any given day, um, at that, at that rate, I think is important to, to, um, to look at because, you know, we think of, I think there's a lot of people right now who think, you know, we need to lower our prison population. And then lawmakers will often come back with, well, okay, we'll increase the probation population. You know, we'll put people on probation instead. And it's like, no, the the solution to, you know, this mass incarceration problem that we have is to do things like expand Medicaid, right? It's to do things like invest more in the school systems, um, to, to actually create community mental health centers that have been promised for decades and decades and, and, you know, have never been delivered. Um, the solution is not to put more people on these quote unquote alternatives to incarceration that are also in their own ways very punitive. Indeed. I, drawing it back to my home state, Oregon, we're at least making something of an effort, but a lot of these systems do just seem designed to make people fail. That's right. That's right. Okay, so um, so uh, what if I when this probation parole report comes out, I'm so going to be in touch. That is, that sounds like a, this is a because you're, you're absolutely right. Now, um, how can people learn more about and and support the work that uh, that that you and Prison Policy Initiative are doing? Your website, social media, that kind of thing. Yeah, if folks want to uh, read our latest work, uh, we have a newsletter. It's on our, you can sign up on our website, which is www.prisonpolicy.org. We also always have our newest reports up on our website. Everything is public. Um, we're on social media. It's Prison Policy Initiative on Facebook. It's Prison Policy on Twitter. It's Prison Policy on Instagram. Um, so you can get at us really wherever you prefer to get your data. That was my conversation with Wanda Bertram, communications strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. For now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Show your support for KBU programs like Prison Pipeline and Labor Radio by becoming a member of KBU today. It's the last week of our All Thrills, No Frills special programming campaign, so go to kboo.fm slash give, or you can donate by texting KBOO to 44321. It's our members who make KBU possible, so please donate today. Find all the specials KBU has produced for All Thrills, No Frills at kboo.fm slash thrills. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for listening to volunteer-powered, community-supported KBOO Portland. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long.
la ville en fête et en délire. You are tuned in to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at KBOO.FM. On the next all-new Voices for the Animals, it's part one of our coverage of the crisis at the Multnomah County Animal Shelter. We'll be speaking with two veteran volunteers who will tell us about their experience 